everyone. Welcome to the 349th episode of the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Tofel. And we have an excellent show for you today, although we may not... Kevin is no longer talking to me because I have not seen his favorite movies in the world. We can tell you what those are a little bit later. Don't tell people because they will do the same thing and unfriend you. I am unfriended by Kevin, but we're going to do the show anyway because it's too late for him to back out. We're going to be talking about all the, well, all the news we've heard so far from AWS reInvent that relates to the IoT. We're going to talk about funding for the company that makes the best Christmas present I ever purchased. We've got a great company story, like a company doing a really good thing. And then we've got a company doing like a not so good thing. We've got an update on holiday lighting you'll want to hear and a potential for an IPO for Raspberry Pi. There's a new law in the books in the UK you might want to know about and a new corporate venture fund now exists. Plus, our guest this week is Alicia Asin, who is the co-founder and CEO of Labellium, and they actually just launched a new cloud. She's going to talk about that, plus her plans to acquire more companies in the IoT. So a lot of great news in this week's show. We're also going to hear from our sponsor, Twilio. But first, we're going to hear from another one of our sponsors, Juniper Networks. Sprawling IoT devices are a prime target for attackers. We talk about it like once a week here. And once infected, those attackers can quickly bring your networks down and leave you vulnerable. This is why Juniper has teamed up with Woot Cloud to bring visibility and context-aware control for devices the moment they join your network. So you can check out ai.mist.com slash Stacy on IoT to hear from experts at Juniper and Woot Cloud as they share tips and tricks for identifying and securing IoT networks. Plus, you can watch a demo and claim a free Juniper Mist Wi-Fi access point. This is the only access point in the industry with a port dedicated to IoT. That's aiot.mist.com slash Stacy on IoT. Okay, Kevin, I know I'm not supposed to be talking to you, but I am because there's so much you can talk to me. I'm not talking to you. Oh, right, right, right. You can just talk to the audience today. Okay. 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 So tons of news. We're just going to go through a bunch of it. AWS reInvent is an annual conference from Amazon Web Services. It's where they launch all their new services. It's where small businesses go to die because AWS is like, you know what, startup, that's such a cool feature. We're going to offer it. It's just generally a good time to be had by all. So news relating to the IoT. Two big stories, one of which is actually, I think, related to the Samsara IPO. So first up, AWS has launched IoT Twin Maker. This is going to be a service designed to make it easier to develop digital twins. And this actually, Microsoft Azure has a similar service. So they've had that actually for like two, maybe three years now. So AWS is just getting in line there. The key with any sort of digital twin service is how the data models are built and what ontologies, and that's such a nerdy word, but basically what words are used to describe something and is that transferable across different platforms? Because when you're creating a digital twin of a building, you can't just say, this is a door. You have to like say it's a door in every single possible software permutation. And then this is what data coming from a door is going to be and what it's going to look like. That's the data model. So, you know, with many of these digital twin platforms, you spend all the work 
labeling everything, getting that all set up, and then you're never going to want to change it or leave because it takes a lot of effort. Okay. So that's what we want to look out there, but they're really useful once you have them because you can do things like you can see where people are in a building, how buildings are being used. If you're doing like a manufacturing plant, you could do optimization. You could do things like understand visually what's going on. It's just very cool. AWS also, and this is what's related to the Samsara IPO, they introduced IoT FleetWise. This is going to be a fleet management service for anybody who handles lots of vehicles. The reason I think this is competitive for Samsara is because that was Samsara's first big product was uh, telematics tracking. Verizon also has one. And so now I understand why Samsara was getting out ahead on this IPO thing, because they're going to need capital to go up against AWS. This is interesting to me because some of the newer, uh, more nimble vehicle makers, think Tesla, for example, perhaps Rivian, Polestar and others. I wonder how much they have built their own data standardization process to collect vehicle information. You know, they may be using servers from a third party, but what Amazon's doing is saying, hey, let's build a service, kind of like what they, what they typically do, like, like with their payment system. Let's build a service and then, you know, license it out and make money off that service. And yeah, I, I just, I, again, I just wonder how many companies are trying to do this on their own. And in the end, they're just going to end up with Fleetwise at AWS. Yeah, it's just a nice add-on service because, I mean, most corporations have fleets, right? You've got your company cars. And right now they might be using a service like an OBD port monitoring service, like, because that's what, like Verizon Telematics, you just plug that device in, you send the data up to Verizon's cloud. But AWS is working with some companies and you can plug certain devices in and just send that up to their cloud and the data modeling will be there. You know, yay. Also, Kevin, you're going to like this one. AWS has announced IoT Robo Runner. Do you want to talk about this Yay. since you're a robot fan? Yeah, so, and it's funny because I had just seen a video of robots in warehouses scurrying around, and I'm like, how do they really get managed, you know? And how, I mean, I, there's obviously a lot going on there in terms of data and fulfillment and logistics. So uh, I guess it was 2018... AWS RoboMaker was a simulation service that was brought out, and, and that way robotics developers could kind of pre-model this kind of stuff and test things out. Now they have IoT RoboRunner for fleet management applications. So again, this would be like another service that they could offer for other warehouses and, and logistics companies that it'll enable robot interoperability, connects the robots to common infrastructure, so they can help scale out this kind of robotic infrastructure. Yes, and I'm sure Amazon has built a lot of this on their own for managing their warehouse workers slash robots. Yep, so it's what they do. It is what they do. They they test it and they build everything they build. Remember, is designed to be a service that they'll sell eventually to everyone. Other services. This is this is super nerdy, but for the IoT people, it's gonna matter. So AWS has announced serverless options for three of their analytic services, and the reason why we're so keen on serverless is because this means it's cheaper and faster to spin up an instance when you need to process your data and then it goes away. So you're not paying for a continual instance. And this is going to save you a little bit of money, which is always nice because good Lord only knows your AWS bills. They're crazy. So they now have serverless data warehouse with Amazon Redshift. So 
yay, that's your big data. You put it in Amazon Redshift and you just pop that over to their serverless stuff. And when you need it, you get your insights and then it goes away. Pretty cool. They also have serverless data streaming for Apache Kafka. So that's their MSK serverless. And then they also have Amazon EMR serverless. Gosh, this is so hard. (laughs) Too many letters. I know, so much. So this is for large-scale distributed data processing jobs, machine learning, SQL queries. And you basically give them the framework, it provisions it, it spins it up, gives you what you need to know, and then it goes away. Again, really cool. Okay. And then finally, in the the things we think are interesting for the IoT folks, specifically, this is AWS IoT Express Link. You know, it's important for the IoT because IoT is in the title. And this is basically, Amazon is working with module makers, Infineon's one of them. And it's basically going to quickly and securely let you connect a device containing that module to the AWS cloud. Yeah. And you can you can get data from that device. I'm looking at uh, some simple code example they have here to just get sensor data from IoT Express Link. So they're 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 basically making it easier to add the connectivity and actually use the connectivity without spending you know hours and hours on creating code for that type of. This lets the device makers focus on the device code, not the connectivity code. Right. And other partners include Espressif. So if you're using like everybody's favorite ESP32 or the 80, I don't remember what it is, but the Espressif chips, we'll just call it that. And also uBlocks, which also makes modules that have connectivity in them. So that is the AWS news. I'm sure we're going to see more in the coming days. And we'll talk about more about the impact probably in this week's newsletter. So stay tuned for that. Now, let's talk about the best Christmas present I ever gave anyone. And this is the... And it was a couple of years ago. It was. It was two years ago. I know because I'm expecting it to fail any day now. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to have to buy another one. But it is the Smart Mug from Ember. And this is just a connected coffee mug that keeps my mom's coffee hot at a set temperature all day. Because my mom makes a cup of coffee and reheats it like three or four times in the microwave. It's disgusting. Sorry, mom. But with the ember, she doesn't do that anymore. And she even like she loves it for like hot toddies in the winter. She's just very excited about this device. And she hates connected devices. But they raised $23.5 million and... This is good because they're looking beyond smart coffee mugs. In fact, they're going cold chain. So medical transports for like vaccines and that sort of thing. And that keep the hot stuff hot and the cold stuff cold. Exactly. <laughs> Man, what what product is that? I don't know. It's probably some uh, Oh, maybe that's from the McDonald's. Remember how you used to get your uh, Big Mac oh, yeah. and it was one side? Maybe that's what it is. Y'all can let Could us know. Be. Anyway. So Ember is doing cold chain stuff, and they're trying to, this funding will help them do that, which actually means that one day, maybe Ember can make my most wanted device of all time, which was the crock pot that kept my food cold, and then rapidly heated up when it was time to like start the cooking process. That still doesn't exist. Yeah, you got timers and whatnot, but it doesn't keep things cold until the timer exactly, starts Exactly, because a lot of things like in the crock pot, if you're out, you know, when you go for away for work, you know, you're gone for like 
10 to 12 hours, and most crockpot does not. That's too much to cook. It's a crockpot crisis. I agree. Okay, so that's, that's what's happening with Ember. Now, let's talk about a really good behavior. If I had like a sparkling Stacy and Kevin award, I would totally give it to Schneider Electric this week because they have discontinued their Wiser Air Wi-Fi thermostat. And I know it didn't sell too well, and it makes sense that they would have to cancel something that didn't do too well. They launched it several years ago. But they're going to shut it off because you can't support devices like kind of stranded devices forever. And instead of like just bricking the device and telling everybody that that's going to happen, they are going to replace people's devices if they would like. So it will still work in their house. You just won't, they're shutting the servers off. So it won't work from your phone. So that's number one. That's pretty good. You still have basic functionality, even if you don't do anything. But two, they offer to replace it with an Ecobee 3 Lite. And they even included... At no charge. Yeah, at no charge, and included a return shipping label to recycle the old one. Ba-bam. Just a million Stacy's Sparkle Awards right there. Because, uh, yeah. This is rare. This is this is very rare and, and commendable on their part. Yeah, thank you, Schneider. And everybody else, like Google, when you shut down Revolve, yeah, take a note, okay? This is what you should be doing. And is it expensive? Yes. Do we want to piss off all our customers? No. If you're a startup, does that make this hard? Yes, but you should have a plan. Okay. That's, that's. Well, and, and actually, that brings up a good point. If you're a startup, you may not have the funding to deal with this. If you, yeah, you know, a Schneider Electric, a conglomerate of that size, obviously has the deeper pockets. So they still should be commended for doing it because they don't have to. They totally don't. But it would be very hard for a startup, I think to try and replicate this. Yes, but a startup could, I mean, this is why I encourage people to have the basic functionality in all their devices and to have a plan for like putting your code in escrow in case people, like in open sourcing it in case the diehards really want to do something with it. Absolutely. Maybe someone builds like a workaround on Home Assistant or something and then you can share that with other people. I don't know. Okay. So that's our like, yay, props to Schneider Electric. Here's our ooh, bad behavior. This one goes out to Owlet, who has stopped selling their popular smart sock family. Owlet has been selling basically smart socks. I think they might have a sleeper now, but I, I know they have the sock for monitoring babies for, it was for SIDS, but just also like a little little tracker for your baby, which... And they track a lot of babies. Over 1 million babies are monitored with their product. Yeah, but the FDA, even all the way back in 2016, was telling Alit, yo, you're saying a lot of stuff about what you can do for babies. Because they do. They talk about, like, we can track heartbeats, we can track breathing patterns, they talk about SIDS. And the FDA was like, nope, you are not cleared to say any of this stuff. And finally, the FDA sent them a formal warning letter saying, look, you need to get formal FDA clearance as a certain type of device to be able to make these marketing claims. And Outlet now has stopped selling their stuff while they figure out what they're going to do. Now, they could have sold this forever as like, know more about your baby. But the FDA is like, mm, you're, you're getting a little too specific. The FDA took a look at the marketing claims and said, look, you know, if you're showing this off and selling it as this type of device, you need to get 
our approval. So that's what sent the warning letter with a request to respond within 15 days and tell the FDA what actions they were going to take. And they actually did respond on a blog post. They did. And what did they say? The outlet blog post says, you know, explains the situation to its customers, which is good, and says, hey, you know, there's no change to your product's functionality. And there's no request from the FDA to exchange or return the product. They're basically going to still support what's out there. However, they are going to stop selling them. And they say they plan to work towards the submission of a device application. I don't know if it will be this device. Um, They are planning to meet with the FDA as well. So it sounds like they're going to come to terms with the FDA, whether it's with this product or some newer product. I'm not sure yet. Yeah, it sounds like they got their hands slapped and they're like, okay, fine. Well, I'm surprised that after five years of being told by the FDA, hey, what are you doing over there? That it took this long to actually come to this? Well, the FDA is not known for being super proactive. Also, I would say the administration may have something to do with this because there are definite policy changes happening right now and priorities. Although the FDA is probably more worried about COVID vaccines, but you know, hey. You know, I I knew I saw it. It does say specifically, we plan to offer a new sleep monitoring solution, which we believe will be available soon. So there's definitely something, some new product in the works or a tweak of this product and working with the FDA. Nice. And I'm really excited about this story because I think we have so many devices out there and I call it digital snake oil. They're selling something that hasn't actually been proven. And I think with the focus on wellness and the amount of money here, there's a lot of people trying to take advantage of of people with like, oh, we have an algorithm that will make sure that you know you're doing this perfectly. And there's no real peer-reviewed science behind a lot of it. There is on some of it, like, you know, Apple has gotten certification for its AFib stuff. I think Fitbit has some certification for some of their tracking, but Samsung does, sure. But there's still a lot of things that, you know, they'll tell you they do something but you don't know if they actually do it well or if it's medically relevant. And that's what drives me bonkers. So Right. And we've, we've talked about this once before, but it's worth mentioning again, when these types of products in the U.S. go for FDA approval, there are different levels of those approvals, depending, basically different device levels yes. in terms of like Owlet is like level zero, meaning <laughs> they're not complying at all right now. So it would be wise for them to at least be certified as a level, whatever it is, one, one, a device, et cetera. So people at least have some semblance of this. Is this a truly accurate measure and a medical device? Is it not a medical device? And so on. Exactly. All right. So now moving right along, this is just (laughs) my favorite story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's like, I'll let Kevin tell you, but you know, in, in honor of the holidays, I've been telling Stacy how much I've really enjoyed Apple HomeKit for the past year. And I keep saying, your husband uses an iPhone and you could go HomeKit. And she says, no, 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 you have HomeKit, so I'll cover the other stuff. But you could have a hybrid smart home. I control my Lutron stuff with, with Siri and with Google, so whatever. So when I saw this story, I had to bring it up. It's nothing major, but it's worth the mention that Stacy's favorite smart Christmas lights, the Twinklies, now support Apple HomeKit. Woo! 
all right. Now, just not in Stacy's house. Just not in my house <laughs> because my house. Well, it says that on the press release. Huh. <laughs> so mean. Okay. <laughs> so yes, for everybody out there who is holding off on the Twinklies, not because they're incredibly expensive, but because the, you're a home kit home. Now you can have it. In other small news, or this could be big news, but it's not big news yet because this is just a rumor. But according to the Telegraph, the Raspberry Pi trading arm that, you know, it's the the money making arm of the Raspberry Pi Foundation. They are they have hired investment bankers to potentially list on the public markets in spring of 2022. And this makes sense because they just raised a lot of money back in September. It was like about $60 million. and. Yeah, I don't know what else to say about this other than go Raspberry Pi. <laughs> I mean, it's such a, a popular product. It's inexpensive, you know, whether it's to ramp up more production, whether it's to improve marketing. Because honestly, like, do you see marketing for Raspberry Pi? I do not. Like, we're the best marketers. We, you know, the people who cover them are probably the best marketers for them. I see marketing simply because... I mean, I'm wandering around Hackster and uh, Adafruit and all those sites. But, you know, I'm excited. I think this, obviously, the foundation will continue its education mission, which is, you know, cheap computing for kids so they can get excited about STEM. But Raspberry Pi has also tons of production. It surprises me how many production industrial IoT deployments have Pis in them. It's ridiculous. Or not ridiculous, I guess, you know, depending on how you look at it. Um, so yeah. All right. It'll be a good IOT stock. Also in the UK, there's a new law in the UK. We talked about it when it was announced last year, but the law is now in force and smart home device makers will be fined if they use things like default passwords. It's also banning things like easy to guess passwords, like password and admin all the passwords that come with new devices will be need to be unique and not resettable to universal factory settings. They also have to tell customers, and this is the part we're excited about because it's kind of like an expiration date, manufacturers have to tell customers at the point of sale about the minimum time requirement for security patches and updates. If the product doesn't have them, then they have to say that on the packaging or at the point of sale. I love it. And... They have to provide a contact person for bug bounty program or for researchers and people who hunt bugs. Yay! And you could get up to 10 million pounds, which is 13.3 million US, or up to 4% of a company's gross revenue for violations. <gasps> What's interesting, it's not specific to devices made in the UK, it's also companies that import tech products into the UK. Yes. And California actually also has a law like this. It was actually became effective last January. So 2020, January, 2020. And this is the SB 327. We've talked about it on the show. I've written about it in the newsletter, but some of these same provisions are in there. So this is not new, but it's expanding and this is great. So yay, UK. All right. Final bit of news. There is a new expanded venture fund in town, Allegiant Ventures. Allegiant is the maker of the Schlage brand of door locks. They've created a... And Von Duprin door closers. And Von Duprin door closers. For y'all who are like, what, Von what? Actually, they're exit devices, my bad. But they make door closers too, the, one of the other brands. Oh, yeah. These are push the push bars when you go to a... Yep, push bars. Yeah. 
the ones they invented and you see them everywhere at big places, not, not in homes, but you know, like at movie theaters and supermarkets and all that. Yep. Yeah. So, so that's what these are. Um, Elysian has not just the home stuff. They have an entire portfolio of enterprise and business security and access solutions, but they've created a second venture fund. They had a one they launched three years ago and that was 50 million. And we actually had one of their executives on the show to talk about it. And now they've got Fun too. They're moving along, and this is a hundred million dollars. They're going to make investments between five hundred and ten million dollars, and the focus is going to be on cybersecurity and privacy, as well as again smart building management. So, you know, if you're looking for corporate venture money, which is a little bit usually you, it's an add-on. They don't usually lead rounds, but they come in and they'll they'll kind of validate your ideas, maybe act as a customer. If they give you advice on how their customers perceive things, that can be helpful. So, yeah. And I guess one final bit of news, Labellium, which is one of the oldest IoT companies out there, has announced a cloud service. We're going to talk about that with our guest coming up in a little bit. But I did want to mention that they launched that. That helps complete a pivot that Labellium has made from selling just connected devices and sensors to selling a full-on service, which, you know, is the continuing trend for any IoT company out there. So you'll hear more from Labellium CEO, Alicia Asin later, but you know, just wanted to throw that in there. Okay, there was a lot of news this week, but we have more. Let us go to the Internet of Things podcast hotline. The IoT podcast hotline is brought to you by Very. Very is a fully distributed IoT engineering firm that partners with its clients to build systems for smart manufacturing, smart energy and utilities, consumer electronics, and connected wellness. Discover what Very's multidisciplinary teams can do for you at verypossible.com slash services. And this week on the IoT Podcast Hotline, we have got a lot to talk about. One, it's the end of the month, so we have a winner. Two, It's the beginning of another month, so we have a new prize. And three, if you want to win a prize from us or ask a question, just give us a call at 512-623-7424. And last month's winner is JD, and he won the Nano Leaf Lines set from Kevin. And I just want to give a special shout out to JD, because I'm pretty sure this is the same JD who comments on the blog a lot with really insightful, mm-hmm. like just two weeks ago, he went through and tracked all of the lumens provided by Connected Lights and taught, like did a deep dive on the post that we did about closets, uh, helping that person who wanted to put a light strip and sensor in their closet. And I just was like, this is excellent. So JD, you rock. I am so glad you won. Okay. We'll get that out to him, and this is a good time to tell you, in December, we are going to put our prize where our mouth is and get you a Lutron hub and then a connected Lutron outdoor plug. I know, it's going to arrive after the holidays when all your holiday lighting is, you know, packed away, but I personally feel that you could have holiday lighting year-round, so that's just throwing that out there for you. Okay, so that's the prize. To enter to win, 512-623-7424. And now, this week's question, which is from Jonathan. Let's hear it. Hey, this is Jonathan. 
I just found your podcast after a recent appearance on Smart Tech Today. Um, now I wonder how I ever lived without it. So my question is, we have several color-changing Casa bulbs in my two teenage sons' rooms and one in our bathroom by the bathtub. We also have some Lutron Caseta switches attached to other lights in our house, both in my office and in the basement. All of these are synced through Google Home to our home and home mini devices and to our Lenovo Smart Clock Essentials in our rooms. The problem being that my sons can say, turn off all the lights, and the lights in our bathroom and in my office will all go off as well. Is there any way to limit which home devices and or which people's voices can control which smart devices? I appreciate any feedback you can provide. Thank you so much. Okay, Jonathan, this is actually a fairly easy question, unless your problem is that your teenagers are just being jerks and pranking you by turning off all your lights. <laughs> so we're, That couldn't be. We're going to assume that, that that's <laughs> not the case, because in that case, we actually can't help you. Google does not provide a way to voice match. They provide a voice match service. Like, so I know that my husband cannot do certain things in our home because he hasn't bothered to set up the voice match, but... Controlling lights pretty limited. is not one of those things. Yeah. No, it's it's more like uh, like with the, if you have Nest products, you can allow for home entry with the lock, but no other devices. So that's fine. But that's a very product specific type of situation. It's not going to do anything for your lights. Parental controls. We looked at that as well. You can prevent uh, people from casting certain YouTube videos and things like that. But again, not at the smart device level. Uh, you can't limit control by voice match. Yeah, and I just confirmed Google with a, a friend of Google, and he's like, nope, can't happen. Not today. But, hey, Google, Jonathan would really like this service, provided that his teenage boys are indeed pranking him, and he doesn't indeed just want to make his life a little easier. But if it's that latter case, we can help you. And the answer to your problem is rooms. In Google and even in Amazon's device. So this could work, and this could work across HomeKit. What you need to do is put the individual light bulbs or light switches in their own rooms. And so if it's your teenage boy's room, you might say boy one. Uh, you probably shouldn't do boy one and boy two because that's going to be complicated for them. Pick a name, pick a whatever. And then they can say, turn off lights in, you know, turn off kitchen, turn off Bob's room. Or if they're in their room, just say lights out, only the lights in their room will be affected. If they have a Google device in their room. But yes, that is also true. So I want to apologize for possibly turning off lights in people's kitchens just a moment ago. But I do want to tell you, Jonathan, how to set up rooms. It's very easy. When you add a device, you are offered the opportunity to set up a room. But if you haven't done that, to add rooms, all you have to do is go into your Google Home. You'll click on whatever devices you have in there, so whatever appropriate each device individually. When you click on that, you're going to see at the bottom an option to add to a room. And then you can create the room there, or you can add it to an existing room if you have it. And that's really all you have to do. It's pretty easy. Yeah. Again, we're kind of assuming the, the, the kids aren't just saying, hey, G, lights out. Just to mess and with you. Therefore, yeah, just, yeah, because that would turn off all the lights in the entire house. So hopefully that's what they're doing. And by doing the rooms, you won't have them shutting the lights off in your bedroom anymore. Hopefully. Now, if that's the case, 
if you have any sort of Eero, Google Wi-Fi, or anything like that, you could actually create a setting for all of their devices and take all of their devices offline in retaliation. But we all know <laughs> that escalation is not really the ideal goal here. So, And just, just make sure they don't have uh, user admin rights to either of those apps, because they can they could just put their rights back. <gasps> it's very complicated parenting in a digital it is. age. It's like managing a little IT infrastructure. Yeah. So there you go, Jonathan. I hope this helps. Good luck to you and your teenage boys. All right. That's it for the Internet of Things podcast hotline. Remember, for December, you can call us at 512-623-7424, and you will be entered to win a Lutron Cassetta bridge and a Lutron outdoor weatherproof plug. It's really a beast, I'm going to tell you. Okay. Now, stay tuned for our guest, who is Alicia Asin, who is the co-founder and CEO at Labellium. She is here to talk about Labellium's cloud and its plans for acquiring new companies. Stay tuned. But first, a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Twilio. Hey everyone, we are taking a quick break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Twilio, who many of y'all know as a provider of APIs for customer engagement. For example, voice, IVR, SMS, WhatsApp, or even the Stacey on IoT podcast hotline is built on Twilio. But not many know that Twilio has been offering cellular IoT connectivity for years. So I have with me Tobias Goebel, who is the product marketing principal at Twilio IoT. How's it going, Tobias? Going great, Stacy. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Well, your main cellular IoT offering is called Twilio SuperSim. Can you tell us a little bit about it and how you differentiate it from other solutions on the market? Yeah, absolutely. Besides SuperSim being a single SIM that opens up almost 400 IoT-optimized networks around the world, we also run our own IoT-only mobile core network. Oh, so you have your own IoT-only mobile core. What does that mean for the customer? First and foremost, owning our core lets us pass through much more control to the customer over exactly which networks are used. And also offer better visibility into logs and connection events for troubleshooting. But our core is solely reserved for the needs of IoT devices. And those connected to our network do not compete with the millions of smart or feature phones out there. We're much quicker with improving the functionality over time, fixing bugs, or generally catering to what our IoT customers need. Nice. And can you give an example of what kind of customers might need this functionality? Yeah, so generally anyone that you know wants to expand to new regions um, that, that go beyond their home country will benefit from this you know, better visibility to, to logs and troubleshooting capabilities, but also more control by being able to actually select from a pick list those networks that you would like to utilize and deselect those you do not want to use. That gives customers like those that use us for micromobility or use us for health wearables and they want to launch their product outside of their home country or to other regions, that ability to, to do that quickly. That sounds great. So can you tell our listeners how they could give Twilio SuperSim a try? Yeah, we offer a free trial to your listeners. Uh, head over to twill.io slash free sim to sign up. That's twill.io, as in twillio, slash free sim, all lowercase, one word. And you can sign up to get a free sim sent your way with full access to our platform and API. 
everyone. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Hagenbotham, and today's guest is Alicia Asin, who is the CEO and co-founder at Libellium. Hello, Alicia. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing great. Excellent. So I am so excited to have you on the show. I feel like I've been covering IoT since 2012, and y'all have been there that whole time. You actually started Libellium back in 2006. So why don't you just give me a quick what is it that Libellium does? Well, Libellium has, has been a, an a IoT native and an IoT pioneer. We were started in 2006, and our main focus by that time was to create an, an IoT sensor device platform. And we were uh, totally focused on the hardware, on, on creating hardware devices that could be connected to anything. Our goal has always been to connect any kind of sensor using any communication platform to any information system. And uh, we've been focusing on solving the interoperability problem in, in the IoT. That journey started back in 2006. And today we have customers in 140 countries uh, covering many different verticals from agriculture to industry and even smart cities. I like that you started solving the interoperability problem back in 2006, and here we are today still with an interoperability problem, (laughs) but we have come a long way. We'll talk about that in a bit, but first, you're here on the show this week because y'all just launched the Libellium Cloud, and I want to understand what it is you're doing there and why you're launching this cloud platform. Well, that's the, the culmination of the strategic shift we wanted to give to, uh, to our company. And it started a couple of years ago. So because we have the advantage of uh, having been around for, for a long time ago, and we've been dealing with the interoperability problems of our customers, uh, we've observed that the market is really needing more integration level in the, sol- in, in, in the solution part. And it means not things that say this could work with that if you integrate that, but with fully integrated things. And we've seen that many companies are launching cloud platforms um, uh, for device management, for uh, for data visualization, and and even for programming devices. But uh, no company owns and designs also the hardware devices as, as we do. So we thought there was an opportunity and, and also a need and, and covering the market to, to address that. And we think it, our aim is to be closer to the customer, to, to the end customer, and, and try to make their lives easier. So by, by giving a solution that it's fully integrated from hardware to, to software, we hope that somehow we could keep on helping to accelerate the IoT adoption. And this is definitely a trend. So I know, gosh, it was only like two weeks ago, some data came out from Oracle that talked about companies finally giving up on this idea of custom IoT solutions and just wanting to buy the connectivity, the sensors, the cloud stuff all together in one platform, which I felt was like a great mode of acceptance because we had seen a bunch of those platform plays launch way back in like 2012, 2013. And I guess it was just too early for them. So I'm very curious, 
What are you seeing from your customers in terms of demand? Like when you look at this cloud, I, I see your cloud's going to integrate with Azure, with AWS. It looks like you're supporting MQTT. Mm-hmm. So what are your customers asking for in terms of a full IoT platform provider? Well, um, the most general, they are asking for two trends and then uh, what I would say a collateral thing. Let's start with the two trends. The first one is they want easy things and and they don't want to deal with uh, with multiple vendors. They don't want to uh, to talk with a very fragmented uh, IoT value chain and discuss with the sensor provider uh, one thing, with the connectivity provider another thing, with the cloud provider for another thing. So um, integration is a real demand uh, demand from customers. They say, well, uh, yes, I know that there's a, a lot of problems uh, to be covered and a lot of issues to to deal with uh, in a in an IoT project. We just want someone to to make one step ahead and say, "Okay, I, I'll deal with that for you." So that's one thing. And the other thing is uh, they are demanding more expertise. In some cases, when you're dealing with customers that um, uh, that just want to that are very early on their their IoT projects and they just want to start piloting or making proof of concepts, visualizing the data is it's enough. But then IoT it's about make about making a tool available for non technical domain experts. What I mean here is we have customers in in the agri-food sector, for example. And they are technicians, but with a very strong agricultural background at the same time. So for for those customers, what they want is being capable to play with the data and to to customize uh, the, the final solution for their final customers. Because a farmer doesn't need to see the full a device management platform. A farmer probably is demanding from the IoT a very easy to use tool that is directly advising uh, him or, or her about whether to irrigate this area or not, or whether to use more fertilizers or not. And then there is the the collateral I mentioned, and it's we need to be coherent with our history. And now we are implementing a part, the cloud part that we didn't use to offer to to our customers. And and we need to acknowledge that many of our existing customers already have their own solutions running on either AWS or Azure or uh, other platforms that are connected by MQTT. So uh, this is a message that it's not our philosophy to, to, to keep customers in a captive way. We, if, if you've been using our products and our devices before we could offer you a, pla- a cloud platform, that's fine. We will keep on allowing you to do that. So that's the, uh, that's the reason why we think it, it was very important to keep all the cloud connectors that we, that we were already, uh, already supporting because uh, they are the result of our customers' demands as well. That makes sense. And that's that's very open and forward thinking of you. So now that you've got the cloud offering, you've got your hardware, is it goal of the company to transition totally to becoming a services company? Or where do you see this ending up, this kind of transition that you've been making for a few years? 
Well, it's definitely a, a big move for us, and def we definitely want to to become a full IoT solutions provider, and we want to to be with our with our customers and really partner with them. So it means keep offering them services uh, before and after their IoT deployment. In in that sense, uh, what what else can you expect from Livalium? Well, we want to extend this vision to the business model as well. And uh, we want to launch some pilots very soon about offering solutions in an OPEX model. Classically, as a hardware company, the business model we have was uh, one time off. And sometimes for, for certain projects, it may be challenging because you need to advance uh, all the investment ahead. Now that we have um, a mechanism to keep the relationship with the, with the customer, one of the things we are exploring is uh, how about offering sensors as a service and, and including all the replacement services and also the visualization of uh, the data visualization and, and, and data analytics uh, all in, in one flat rate. And that's something that we want to explore and we are planning to incorporate to our offering. Yes, that having that mix and then possibly going all the way to a sassy, a sassy model is is definitely it's definitely trendy, especially with the sensors, because you're gonna need to replace those eh, relatively often, right? And wouldn't it be nice if your vendor did that as opposed to you having to worry about it as the customer is yeah. has been kind of the takeaway there. I want to stress this because when when people think of sensors, they, maybe um, if I ask you for a sensor, you you would say uh, temperature or humidity. Those are the most common sensors, and well, you you need to replace them. And well, any sensor in the world expires sooner or later. But think about the gas sensors, the pollutant sensors. They really need to to be replaced in order to keep working because they expire as a, as a yogurt <laughs> in your fridge. And I think I've observed that this is not very uh, well known in the, in the market. And many customers got surprised about that and say, oh, is, isn't this going to be working like forever or till it runs out of battery? Do I have more limitations on, on that? And when they discover that they need to deal with um, sensor expiration, the next question is, how do I know when is the right moment to do that? So that's another thing that we want to cover because we are experts in the, in the hardware side. We can better advise on that and even um, perform the predictive maintenance on the, on the device and, and see when is it going to need the replacement and be ahead of that, which is especially important with the with the component shortage uh, to plan ahead for for components replacement. All right, you've been doing this for, as we said, for a long time. So I would love to get your historical perspective on where we've come. Maybe not since two thousand six, which I kind of think of as the M to M era, but maybe in the last ten years, what has evolved? Obviously, interoperability not so good yet, but. What has become good? Well, I think that's that's been quite a journey, and and I think that we've been evolving, we've been making the conversation more mature. And ten years ago, everything was a POC promoted by an, an innovation department, 
and as a result of, of that, forty percent of the of the sales come uh, come in in December when everybody knew that uh, the amount of budget it have uh, free to invest in whatever thing, and namely IoT, for example. And now I observe more maturity in the market and more knowledge, less than I would like to sometimes especially in the public sector, but that's a different story that, that we could talk for hours. And also, uh, what I observe when, when you look at the, the different surveys about the IoT barriers and about the main challenges when deploying an IoT project, some years ago, that was very consistent that top barriers were always related to technical issues, like we don't have the skills, we we don't know how to to interconnect things or we are dealing with security and whatever reasons and now for the first time in the top 3 of reasons uh, you have cultural change and iot leadership within the the company implementing the solution and i think that's that means a lot and it means that iot has transcend the innovation departments in, in the companies. And now it's in a more transversal level of the company. And as a result of that, uh, we uh, real projects are being implemented. And of course, they get resistance from the, uh, from, the from other departments. Uh, so if you implement a new solution to monitor the cold chain in your supermarkets, and you find unexpected results, like maybe it's broken from time to time, then you need to, uh, that it doesn't stop there. It just, it, it, uh, identifying that is only the beginning. And you need to start reviewing all your internal processes and reviewing the way that you, you can fix things using data. And I think that that's been the biggest advance in the, in the, in the past 10 years. I like it. So with your product, because uh, process, business processes, changing the culture is so much probably more difficult than the technology, as you were saying, mm-hmm. are y'all offering consulting services as part of this? I, I've seen like Lexmark just did their IoT platform that they launched and they launched it with the consulting. Is that something that y'all are interested in or do you see that becoming a big part of the business? I think that consultancy, it's, well, it's definitely something we offer. And it's also something that many times we struggle in identifying where is the red line between pre-sales and consultancy. And this is, uh, many people hearing me will, will be nodding with her, with their heads, not right now, because this is pretty common. We think that to give consultancy in, in the business of your customer, you need to be an expert. So, and, and we can be an overall consultant for helping how to design the, the full IoT solution. When it comes to advice on the changing the processes, we think that you need to admit that we, we are not experts. But we think that that's important too. And that forms part of our inorganic growth strategy. We want to acquire a couple of companies in the following uh, 24 months. The goal is to acquire companies that are closer to the end user and delivering final solutions and giving all the advice. So coming back to your question, I could say that, yes, we are planning to to go deeper in the processes of our customers and understanding very well 
what are we solving, not only in terms of, uh, of technical viability, but also in terms of uh, the, the business problem that we are solving. And that will be done through acquisitions. Do you have any acquisitions in mind so far or areas of the world that you would be looking? We are focusing on the geographies where we have a bigger footprint, which are uh, Europe and the US. Uh, That's not very surprising. And regarding sectors, uh, we are trying to make sense of of our horizontality. And we are identifying sustainability as as a common link of all the verticals that we are having. So we are some, right now we are we have a target list with uh, more than 100 companies and I would say that 80% or even more of them are related related to environmental aspects, uh, water quality, water supply or many of them uh, agricultural deployments. Nice. That that warms the cockles of my heart since sustainability is so important yeah. right now. Uh, let us let me, let me just ask you, in terms of geographic differences, Europe has always been so much further ahead than the U.S. in IoT. I'm curious, and this was before the pandemic, and I feel like after the pandemic, I feel like a lot of companies and even cities here have really kind of doubled down on IoT. Has that changed at all, or what, what does the U.S. need to do to get, I guess, to get in line with Europe? Well, I think that the, the the right question is how can Europe keep their competitive advantage? Because what I think, what I see is that right now, today, I think that US that the US is at the same level as Europe. And during the pandemic, when the US was totally focused on reactivating the the economical activity and investing in digitalization, in Europe, as usual. We were being more cautious, more sensitive about the risk of the pandemic and planning and talking a lot about this huge uh, REACT program from the European Union that will come in lots of millions for digitalization in, in, in the whole area. The problem here is that one can say, oh my gosh, uh, Europe is investing billions in in digitalization. So how can we be at the same level of them if uh, the public administrations are um, are pushing lots of money? The problem is that in somehow, in some cases, it's having the the contrary effect because it's holding back buyers. The expectations of the companies right now in some cases are totally mistaken. And they say, oh, no, I I want to invest in this project, but I'm going to expect for the right program from the the EU to get it for free. And well, one, that's not going to happen. That's not going to be for free in any case. And B, that shouldn't be the driver for a business decision. Do you need this project in your in your company or don't you? If the if the answer is yes, you can wait to implement a competitive advantage for your business. My fear is that the perverse effect of the money rain that we will be having, hopefully, uh, it's holding back the buyers, and and we cannot afford that. That is a really interesting perspective. Okay. Well, Alicia, this has been really helpful. I really appreciate you chatting with me today. And thank you for coming on the show. Uh, It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me here. And that concludes this week's episode of the Internet of Things podcast. 
Please join us next Thursday and don't forget to subscribe. And if you can't get enough IoT news, I would love for you to sign up at www.stacyoniot.com for our weekly IoT newsletter, where we explain all kinds of things that we don't even get to on the show. Once again, thank you for listening and please subscribe. Thank you.